Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Good evening. Uh, it's a pleasure once again hosting a Vali Bet Midrash uh, lecture tonight. Uh, Rav Shmuel, it's always a pleasure partnering with you and uh, truly taking, uh, taking an active part in this blessed cause called uh, Vali Bet Midrash. Welcome everyone. Have a good uh, evening. And I know that uh, we'll all be truly elevated and inspired tonight. And please, God, we should only share moments as such in joy and in health always. How amazing is Rabbi Thank you for hosting. Thank you, Beth Tefila, our wonderful, wonderful partner. It's a great pleasure to be with you all uh, for uh, an exciting night of learning together with Rabbi Sperber, just because I always get the question, there are two bathrooms back that way, um, and it's nice that you can go to the back if you need. Uh, there's also some tea and stuff. Thank you for the congregation for having that. Um, Rabbi Daniel, Rabbi Dr. Daniel Sperber is a professor and academic, an expert in classical philology, history of Jewish customs, Jewish art history, Jewish education, and Talmudic studies. Born in Wales, Rabbi Sperber studied for rabbinical ordination at Yeshivat Kol Torah in Israel, earned a doctorate from University College in London in the departments of Ancient History and Hebrew Studies. Currently, Rabbi Sperber is a professor of Talmud at Bar Ilan University in Israel and serves as rabbi of the Menachem Zion Synagogue in Jerusalem's Old City. In 1992, Rabbi Sperber won the Israel Prize, the state's highest honor for his contribution to the field of Jewish studies. Rev. Sperber has published scores of books and hundreds of articles on the subject, including Minhage Yisrael, Origins and History on the Character and Evolution of Jewish Customs. His studies examine the halachic and minhagic, the cultures, the, the customs, uh, the, their foundations of the role of women in Judaism. He has been a participant in conferences of the Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance and written extensively on the topic of inclusion of women in ritual services. He is married to Hannah Magnus, uh, originally of Highland Park, Illinois, which is actually my, right next to my hometown. The two of them have 10 children and live in the, in the Jewish quarter of the old city of Jerusalem. Uh, Rabbi, Rabbi Sperber, if you have not heard of him already, you should know that he is one of the absolute highest leading scholars of our time, uh, aside from uh, producing books that have been uh, crucial to the understanding of Judaism in our time. Uh, he is also just a very soft-spoken Mensch. And with the self-spoken, I encourage folks in the back to come closer because he actually speaks a little bit softly. Um, I'm going to encourage him to speak a little bit loudly. Uh, but please join me in giving a very warm welcome to Professor Rabbi Daniel Schoen. Good evening. Uh, it's my first time in Phoenix, and um, I'm delighted to be here. I was asked to speak on the subject of uh, the tension between tradition and innovation. So I'd like to start with some very basic concepts. Jewish law in Hebrew is called halacha. Halacha comes from the root haloch, to walk, 
or to go, to move in a certain direction. And it's not the same as wandering. It's directional movement. Vayelech mikan lakan. When he went from here to there. So there's always a goal to the movement. So halacha represents a dynamic movement with specific direction. And there's a second term, and that's psak, psak halacha, which is the decision that rabbis make when deciding on the halacha. Psak comes from the root pasok, to cut, or to interrupt, or to halt. Hafsaka is an interruption or intermission. So, the term psak halacha, which is what people use when they're talking about rabbinic adjudication, rabbinic rulings, actually consists of two words which seem to contradict one another. The one talking about forward directional movement and the other talking about interrupting, stopping, cutting off. And that is basically how halakha has been working, functioning, throughout the last two millennia, which is more or less the period of time that we're talking about, because I'm not talking about biblical law or intertestamental law, which is a field that I'm not conversant with in any case. <laughs> so, if we look at the sort of the history of Jewish law, it consists of movement and pause, interruption. Vayisu vayachanu. The children of Israel traveled, journeyed in the wilderness, and then they encamped. Movement, pause, halts. So if we look at the first, the earliest forms of our um, organized codices, the Mishnah and the Talmud, the Mishnah having been codified more or less in the year 220, the Babylonian Talmud more or less around 500, the Palestinian Talmud slightly earlier than that, we find that on the one hand there are progressions, but then there are cisura, then there are stops. The end of the Mishnah, and the Mishnah was edited by Rabbi Yehuda Nasir, the Judah prince, around the year 220 or thereabouts, 
And that was a sort of an attempt to crystallize the knowledge that existed up to that time of Jewish law. There were parallel developments taking place, more material that wasn't actually included in the Mishnah itself, in the Tosefta, Breitot, etc. But the Mishnah constituted the canon, canonic law. But then it had to be interpreted because in any codex you can never take into account all the different situations that might arise. And any legal formulation, and we have a lawyer over here, you probably have more than that, than one over here, know that any formulation can be interpreted in a number of ways. That's the nature of human language. So, the Talmudic authorities, the Amoraim, they discuss the Mishnah and those other bodies of law, the Tosefta, the Breitot, and they try to work out what were the basic ideas behind them, from where did the rabbis get these opinions, what were the sources in the biblical texts, and as a consequence, the body of rulings went and expanded. More situations were taken into account. Reasoning behind the very brief legal formulations of the Mishnah were uncovered. And as soon as you have the reason, then you can apply it to other situations. And that also came to an end around the year 500, the Babylonian Talmud. But there were principles that were laid out which stated that the rabbis of the Talmudic period, of the Amoraic period, were not allowed to disagree to dissent from the opinions of the earlier Mishnah authorities. In other words, their discussions had to be within the parameters of those earlier formulations. Now, those early formulations consisted for the main part of differences of opinion. There's never been a single opinion given in any aspect of Jewish law. <laughs> so you had to choose. And the choices, again, according to a series of fairly rational principles that were developed during this period. So on the one hand, you have a situation where there is an evolving state of understanding of the earlier sources, an expansion of the application of those principles, decisions as to which of the various dissenting opinions should be used, but nonetheless, within that dynamic process of 
evolution, there remain certain principles which are strictures that you must not disagree or ignore one of these earlier sources. So, there is, there are boundaries beyond which you may not go. Now this process continues into the subsequent periods, which are called the periods of the Goonim, between 500 and 7 or 800, uh, sorry, 500 and 1,000. And again, the same sort of thing happens. There's an expansion, there's an evolutionary process which is dynamic, but the Goonim nonetheless feel bound not to ignore or to dissent from the opinions of the Amoraim. And then comes another period, another 500 years, which we call the Rishonim, from the period of Rashi until the Shulchan Aruch, from around the year 1000 to around the year 1500, and the same thing is happening. And the Codex Caesar being written again. So the Rambam, Manonides, writes a codex, which is based on earlier sources, in which he tries again to crystallize. And as soon as you formulate things, you're always limiting. Your formulation is always limiting. And he tries to crystallize the whole of the body of Jewish legal knowledge. And then the commentators start discussing him and interpreting him in different ways and coming up with different understandings of what he had actually said. And this again continues, and then there are new situations that evolve. And so, a few hundred years later, somebody else has to start doing the work again. And that's Yosef Karo and the Moshe Yisraelis in the Shulchan Aruch, the Ashkenazi part and the Sephardi part. And again, we have a codex. And again, the codex within the framework of the codex, the rules that say that the, the Rishonim must not descend from the Gonim, just as the Gonim must not descend from the Amoraim, just as the Amoraim must not descend from the Tanaim. So all the time we have a process of halicha, of halacha, of movement, of expansion, of innovation, and psak, and periods of time when everything has to come to a halt. We have to start reconsidering the whole situation, putting it all together. The body of knowledge is expanding, not as it has in present day, of course, but it's expanding and it has to be pulled together and classified and categorized in a way so you can get to it easily. And it must be understandable. And these codexes, all of them, have one special 
characteristic. They give you rulings, but they don't explain why that ruling is so, and they don't give you the source. That is why the super commentaries have so much work to do. They have to work out the rationale behind each of these rulings and trace its source or its sources. And this continues from the Shulchan Aruch up to the present day. And alongside with the codices, the Mishnah, the Rambam, the Shulchan Aruch, and others, there develops a parallel body of literature which is totally disorganized and um, of a totally different literary nature, and that is the literature of the responser literature, the tshuvot. Rabbis were asked questions. These questions were complicated questions. They were questions which you couldn't find the answer to them by opening the Shulchan Aruch. They introduced additional elements. And consequently, the answer had to be quite lengthy. It had to explain the nature of the question, all the aspects involved in that question, what were the possible sources, because we always go back to the sources, how we should deal with such a question, and then what is our final decision when we've gone through all this material, how we sort it out, how we classify it, what's more important, what's less important, and then we come up with the answer. So they are she'elot u'tshuvot, questions and answers. All the great rabbis were involved in answering questions. They had communities, people came to them, the questions were new questions that because of the circumstances of the times, and therefore and they wrote these answers and they saved the copies for themselves, and then they put them together in volumes. And they have no particular order. Sometimes they're classified in the order of the Shulchan Aruch, but that's just for convenience. So there are thousands of these books and tens of thousands of these responsa. And it's a big mess. <laughs> <laughs> and there have been people who have tried to uh, catalogue them and classify them. And you have to understand that when using these responsa, these answers, you have to know who the responder was, when he lived, in which century, in which country, 
under which circumstances was he in a, a Jewish environment, a Christian environment, or a Muslim environment? Was he in times of war or in times of peace? Was he dealing with a rich community or a poor community? So that it's not merely a matter of indexing these thousands of answers and thinking that, okay, the same question turns up nowadays, we can find it, it was written by so-and-so. It was written in the 17th century in Yemen. Doesn't mean that it's applicable in Phoenix in the 21st century. So, even in this very brief sort of thumbnail sketch of the history of the literature of halakha, you understand one thing very clearly, that there was constantly a process of evolution, of movement forward. And evolution means innovation, because you're dealing with new questions, because if you didn't have a new question, you would just go back to the original source. You wouldn't need to write this, this response. And if there were no new situations, you wouldn't have to rewrite the codices. And it would be sufficient that we had a Mishnah or a Rambam. And nobody nowadays could live either by the Mishnah or the Rambam. It would be totally impossible. So, innovation is something which is intrinsic to halakha, not just from a linguistic point of view. We couldn't live in accordance with the legal system that was 2,000 years old in the 21st century had it not evolved and adapted and accommodated different situations. And that is why the halakha also is a bit like a tree, you know, it's got a trunk and then it spreads out in many branches and the branches have twigs. And that's why different countries different communities, in different periods of time, have different halachot and different minagim to accommodate the specific circumstances of that particular time and place and situation. Now, there have been times, periods in Jewish history, when sects that were not strictly speaking normative <coughs> have tried to make radical alterations in the halakha. This happened during the Second Temple period with the Sadducees. This happened in the 7th and 8th century, just to say the 
Byzantine period with the Karaites. And this happened in the 19th century, in the early 19th century, with the reform movement. So, at each of these periods of time, there came about some sort of a split between whoever considered himself to be the normative, the representative of normative Judaism, and those who he considered had gone beyond the pale. And when this happened, there were, of necessity, conflicts, polemics, and the fear that the new movement would erode the basis, the fundamentals of Jewish law, caused the leading authorities of the so-called Orthodox community to become much more stringent. And this happened at various periods of Jewish history. Now, in the early 19th century, the late 18th, the early 19th century, when the reform movement began in Western Europe, in Germany, and so on and so forth, the Orthodox communities saw this as a great danger. They thought that they were going too far beyond the borders or the parameters that they considered to be permissible. One of the leading authorities of the Orthodox community in Europe, the Khatam Sofer, Rabbi Moshe Sofer, who was um, felt threatened by the reform movement, he formulated a phrase or quoted a Talmudic phrase called Chadash Asur Minatora. Innovation is forbidden by biblical law. Now, when he spoke of Chadash, he was thinking of the reform movement who were called Hamachadshim, the innovators. The original meaning of this phrase is completely different. It refers to something found in the Talmud relating to the new harvests that could not be used prior to the giving of the Omer, a certain sacrifice, at the beginning of Pesach. Chadash was the new harvest. Asum in Torah, you could not use it until the Omer was brought. But the Khatam Sofer used this phrase in a completely new fashion. He said, any innovation, Chadash, is assuming a Torah, it's forbidden. This is a phrase that sort of caught on. And therefore, because Chadash innovations are assuming a Torah, 
are forbidden by biblical law, all sorts of strange things were understood. One of the move, one of the changes of the early reform movement was, for instance, that the rabbi and the chazan wore special garments, which are quite common nowadays, even in Orthodox synagogues. In England, I know, funny hats and long black robes. And that was actually copying the local church practices. That was considered asum in Torah, forbidden by biblical law. As though the Bible wrote about the garments that the rabbi wore in the synagogue. Or, for instance, the place of the bimah in the uh, classical synagogues was in the center of the shul. The early reform movements pushed them closer to the Ark of the Lord, the Aron Kodesh, just as in the churches, the lectern is closer to the altar. That was Asum in Torah. They introduced vernacular into the service, the use of the local languages, German, French, and so on and so forth, as part of the liturgy, Asum in Torah, and so on and so forth. So, obviously, this type of notion that innovation is forbidden by, Jews, by biblical law was formulated as a bulwark, as a fence to protect traditional Jewish legal values. And when you feel threatened by an enemy, then you build a wall around yourself to protect yourself. And at times you even exaggerate. And when I say exaggerate, I'll give you examples of the degree to which his followers exaggerated. The Khatam Sofer had a tremendous influence, especially on Eastern European um, halakha. His followers, his children, and other of his uh, disciples wrote their own responsa. And certain communities approached one of his disciples in the following generation with the following question. Our synagogues are very cold in the winter. You can imagine in northern Germany or on the borders of Russia. So much so that in the winter when the rabbi comes in, his beard has become a block of ice. <laughs> and it's very difficult for us to get a quorum, a minion, in the morning. We have to pay people to come. So we want to introduce heating into the synagogue. Now, we should bear in mind that in many of the Eastern European synagogues, the synagogues were built of the wood. They were wooden synagogues. Therefore, 
they didn't have heaters. Nonetheless, they wanted to introduce heating and so the people would be able to come and pray in their synagogues. The answer given was, our forefathers never had heaters in the synagogue, you will not have heaters in the synagogue. Chadash asumina Torah. And that is the reason it was given. And another responser, the question was, it was our custom that people stand up throughout the synagogue service. We don't have benches. We only have shtenderim, lecterns. We want to introduce benches because some of our people are old and they find it very difficult to stand. And especially on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, when the service is very long, it's very difficult to stand for many, many hours. So we want to introduce benches. The answer is no. We've never had benches in the past. That is a breach of tradition. Chadash It's very amazing that one of the major poskim, decisors, that we use all the time, the Chofetz Chaim, the Mishnah Bura, who is, was in many ways a, quite an interesting liberal person, was asked whether he could introduce ha-elektrish into the synagogue, electricity. Not on Shabbat, on the weekday. You know, they used to have candles or oil lamps. He said, no, no, that's an innovation that's forbidden. So we have this strange situation which is very clearly the result of a very specific um, sociological situation. Even geographically delineated which brought about a new type of stringency into Jewish law virtually um, fossilizing Jewish law. If you can't make changes, if any attempt to adapt to changing circumstances is regarded as because it's chadash, it's innovative, then you can't be lenient and you're basically stultifying Jewish law. And this is what's happened over the last 200 years in certain elements of the Jewish community, in certain streams of the Jewish community, that the legacy of the Khatam Sofer is a legacy of stringency and of lack of accommodation. That is what's happening in the so-called ultra-Orthodox communities, the Haredim, as we call them.
this really is anti-halachic. Because as we said before, in every generation, there was always changes, innovations, sometimes very radical. If we go back to Talmudic times, we know that Hillel, who lived around the year zero, <laughs> introduced something called the Prozbor. According to biblical laws, at the end of the sabbatical year, all debts are cancelled. So, there's no good reason to give a loan if you know that your debt is going to be cancelled in a year or two's time. And as a consequence, poor people were not being helped by the richer people. This was obviously not the intention of the biblical law. The biblical law was that in an agricultural society, if you have a bad year, a drought, and you don't have grain to plant your next year's harvest, you have to borrow. And if you have two years, then you have to borrow again. And there's no way that you can afterwards pay it back. And you fall into a rut. So the Torah said, in that case, every seven years, we're going to have a cancellation of debts. But when that acted against itself, it was counterproductive, and people wouldn't give loans, and these were usually not money loans, but grain loans in those periods of time, then Hillel found a way to basically cross out a whole law that's written in the Bible. He did it in a very sophisticated fashion, which we don't have to go into. But this was a tremendous innovation. Biblical law doesn't permit a person to take usury. In other words, if you lend money to somebody, you can't demand to get back more when that loan is repaid. There's no interest. Interest is not allowed. Again, we understand biblical law. A person <coughs> takes a loan because he's in a very difficult situation. He's very pleased if he can make ends meet. But if he has, suddenly has to give back more than he got in the first place, he won't be able to. But there's no incentive to give a loan if you're not going to give anything back for it. And that's a biblical law of ribit, neshech, tarbit, in the biblical terms. And that was annulled in the 14th century by something called a heteriska. Again, not important to explain how this works. But everybody that has a bank account is getting interest. Well, nowadays, maybe you're not getting so much interest, but, but you want to get interest. And that is, and in Israel, you know, we're all, the banks are Jewish. So we're all sinners, but for this tremendous innovation. 
and it is an innovation. And so on and so forth. And one can give any number of examples. I mean, again, polygamy was permitted in Jewish law, but it was forbidden during the period of Rabbeinu Gershon and in the end of the ninth century, mainly for economic reasons. And that changed the whole, among Ashkenazim, and that changed the whole nature of Jewish family life in the West. That was very innovative. So it's not only that things were permitted that had been forbidden by Jewish law, things were forbidden that had been permitted by Jewish law. But this was going on all the time, generation after generation. There's no great forsake adjudicator decisor who has not made radical innovative rulings but always these rulings were given within a framework which was the parameters given by the ancient texts. There was never a, a great authority who disregarded the text. Maybe he reinterpreted it. Maybe he found some way to circumvent it. But he did so knowingly. And so, parallel with the use of the texts, there evolved a system which is called Klalei Hapsak, the rules of decision-making. <coughs> As I mentioned before, there's no single halakha virtually that does not have a variety of different interpretations. When you look at the Shulchan Aruch, which is one of our prime codices, you have on the one hand the rulings of Rabbi Yosef Karo the Sfaradi, you have the rulings, the, the notes on the side, which is usually written in a different typeface of the Moshe Yisraelis, the Ashkenazi, and then you have a variety of super commentaries. And as the generations go by, there are more and more opinions We never really know which is the true opinion. It's not as though there's some knowledge of what is the absolute truth. But we have pragmatically to come to decisions. You can't say, if somebody comes to you with a question and say, well, According to the Yosef Karo, you can do this. According to the Moshe Isilis, you can do that. According to the Shach, you can do the third thing. He said, he wants to know what he's allowed to do or what he's not allowed to do. Can he eat this or can he not eat this? Can he do this on Shabbat or can he not do this on Shabbat? And so on and so forth. So for pragmatic reasons, there have to be a series of criteria as to how to use how to decide, how to determine 
which of these various opinions to use. The very development of the klalea psak of the rules of decision-making in itself was an innovation. Some of these rules go back already to the Mishnah, based maybe on a biblical statement. Yachid v'rabim halachak rabim a single opinion on the one hand and a, a group opinion. On the other hand, we follow the group. In other words, we follow the majority. Based on a verse of the Bible that says, rabim we tend towards the majority decision. And that particular verse is also dealing with a different situation. It's dealing with the courts. But we're extending the principle, the biblical principle of what should go on in a court case to how to deal with a variety of opinions which are not within a court framework. But the Mishnah in Masechet Eduyot says, if really we only have to follow the majority opinion, the Rabbim, as a, and not the Yachid, in other words, in a Mishnah, what you'd normally have is Rabbi Yehuda says so and so, the Chachamim Omrim, and the Rabbis say, so that's the majority. Why do you need to include the opinion of the individual? So the Mishnah says, because there may come a time when circumstances require you to use a minority opinion. And then you have on what to base yourself. What does that mean? That means that you're not, when you say you follow the majority opinion, it doesn't mean to say to you that that is the correct opinion. It means that for practical reasons, for pragmatic reasons, the rule we will use is that we will, use the, we will follow the majority opinion. But it may be that the minority opinion is just as correct or only correct. So, it was necessary at various periods of time to develop these criteria by which you know how to decide. This in itself was an innovative process. The earliest principles are from the Amoraic period, then the Goonim add others, the Rishonim others, and the Achonim others. So at every stage, any viewpoint from which you look at Jewish law, you're constantly seeing a dynamic process of movement, of directional movement. And that directional movement of necessity is one which is constantly innovative. And at the same time, you must be aware also of the limitations, the strictures, the parameters, the broader parameters of psak. In other words, who that you don't ignore an opinion 
who do you follow? That you would never go against the biblical law directly. That if there's a uh, question of uncertainty, then in biblical law we take a stringent position and in rabbinic law we take a lenient position. These are principles which have a limiting effect. So all the time we have this tension between what we might call tradition. Tradition is the, is the, is the stopping power, the halting, looking back always. And innovation, which is the forward-looking process. So you're in a tug of war, you know, you're looking forwards and backwards at the same time. You're moving forwards and you're halting all the time. This is very, very important. It, it's become more important in, in, in contemporary period. Because nowadays, changes, changes in society always took place, but they had a certain tempo. They weren't quite as rapid as they are nowadays. <laughs> Sometimes it used to take 50 years for something to change. Nowadays it takes a year. You can't keep up with the rate of change. So in the past, there was a period of... It took time for law to accommodate to change. And law tended to be a bit tardy. Sometimes it took a generation or two or three for the laws to update themselves. And this somehow or other worked because the changes were slower. But nowadays changes are so rapid and so radical that you can't wait. So the whole of our society has changed. One of the things that was mentioned is the fact that the status of women has changed. Women are educated. Women can read. In medieval times, most women could not read. They're educated in all fields. It's not that long you know, historically, that women were allowed to be doctors. It's not so, such a long period of time that women have been allowed to be lawyers. It's not that long in terms of history that women are allowed to vote. But they do vote, and they are doctors, and they are lawyers, and they are Supreme Court judges. They can be prime ministers and presidents. So, you can't hold them down. It makes no sense that a woman can be a Supreme Court judge, but she can't be a rabbi. What is a rabbi? A rabbi is a guy that answers questions. You have to have knowledge. You have to have information. As soon as Jewish learning became open to the whole community. So women started learning, started studying. Maybe they started later in life. 
Maybe they didn't go to a yeshiva at the age of 12 or 13. But they caught up pretty quickly. So, how could it be that even in an, that in an Orthodox community, a woman should not have, when she has proven her, 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 her knowledge, her expertise, her sensitivity, that she should not have basically the same opportunities, the same job opportunity in terms of present-day legal situations that a man has. It makes no sense that even to the present day, the RCAA, the Orthodox establishment doesn't allow women to be presidents of synagogue committees. There was a court case in Israel many years ago. The women were not allowed to sit on the religious councils, the municipal councils, the Moisad Atit. The Supreme Court ruled they were permitted to do so. But up till that time they weren't. This didn't make sense. And the argument this is a breach of tradition. This is against Masora, which means tradition. Is again one that is totally unconvincing. Because our Masora, our tradition, is a tradition of change, of accommodation, of, a, of adapting itself. So there are all sorts of current problems that are plaguing Jewish community, certainly the Orthodox Jewish community, both here in the United States and in Israel and in Europe. And the innovations that have been suggested, put forward, put into practice, such as ordination of women rabbis and such like, constitute a threat to the male monopoly of the Orthodox Jewish establishment. And consequently, the RCA, Moitzak Gedolea Torah Shel Agudat Yisrael Abrit, the chief rabbinate in England, and similarly, the chief rabbinate in Israel, have come out with very wishy-washy um, condemnations of these new developments which have no real halachic basis. And the main argument is that this is a breach of tradition. Agudat Israel even wrote that it has trampled the basic tenets of Judaism. 
I don't know what basic tenets of Judaism were trampled by ordaining women rabbis. It's true that this didn't take place in the past. And if you really believe in Chadash Asum in Torah, that any innovation is forbidden by biblical law, then we are grave sinners. But Rav Kuxit who was the chief rabbi of Israel, one of the greatest rabbinic authorities of the early 20th century, made two statements that for me personally are guidelines. He said as follows, just as it is forbidden to permit that which is forbidden, so it is forbidden to forbid that which is permitted. So if something is permitted, and if you can prove that from the sources, without in any way straying from the classical parameters of Jewish normative law, then it is forbidden to forbid it. And the other phrase that he formulated, which is beautiful in Hebrew and difficult, you lose a lot in translation. And it is in direct opposition to the statement that was made in its time a hundred and something years earlier by the Chatam Sofer, Moshe Sofer of Preshburg, that Chadash Asumina Torah, was Hayashan Yitchadesh Vahadash Yitkadesh. The ancient, the archaic, will be renewed or will be innovated and the innovations will be sanctified. And what he meant by that was hachadash, hayashan yitchadesh, the ancient will be resuscitated, meant that we don't ignore the yashan, the ancient. We just give it a new face. And when we've done that, hachadash, yitkadesh, it will be sanctified. So this constitutes the answer of modern orthodoxy to chadash asur Torah, to the Haredi ultra-religious position. And we, I, <laughs> modern Orthodox Jews, believe that this is true Judaism and that the movement, the stream of the ultra-Orthodoxy, which doesn't admit of change, but obviously they also admit of change, but they say they don't, is actually a perversion of classical Jewish law. Thank you.
Burger. That's an enormous amount of content you just put out. Thank you. Very, uh, very rich. So I'm not going to field questions. I'll just let you direct, uh, uh, ask your questions directly. We can't really stop at 8.30, so we have about 25 minutes for questions. So please. You, you talked uh, a lot about how between each period you weren't allowed to sort of argue with the previous period, i.e. the Rishonim and the Thonim, right? So uh, in, when I was growing up in yeshiva, or in yeshivas, I guess, for lack of a better word, the answer that they gave to that was because you can't, you know, they were so much greater than Satchar and us and balls of fire, Satchar and are there alternative explanations to that? Very nice. <laughs> the two, again, contradictory principles in the Klaleapsak, in the rules of decision making. The one is Ein Ha'acharon Cholek Alarishon. The later person doesn't contradict the earlier one. Or ein ha'amora That's one principle. The other principle is halacha kabatrai. That the halacha is according to the later opinion. The latter opinion. Why do we say that the later person cannot contradict the earlier one? Rishonim kemalachim, nanu kebnei adam. They were greater than us. We are, there's been a diminution of understanding, of knowledge, not of knowledge, knowledge has expanded, but understanding. We are less brilliant than them. We're not as bright as they are. We're dumb compared to them. <laughs> and therefore, we cannot ignore them. We're further away from Sinai. What? We're further away from Sinai. We're further away from Sinai. Okay. <laughs> then, on the other hand, why do we say halakha We rule according to the later opinion, if there's an earlier one and a later one, within those Frameworks within the period of the Rishonim, we follow the later one. With period of the Achronim, we follow the later one. Kenanas al gabe anak, like a dwarf on the shoulders of a giant. They were giants, but when a dwarf climbs onto the back of a giant, he still sees further than that giant. His horizon is wider. And the assumption is that the later authority, the latter authority, has read the writings of the early one and nonetheless <coughs> decided to dissent because he had some additional understanding. So it's not because we're brighter than them, it's because we're climbing on their backs, we're using their brilliance, and we're seeing slightly further than them. But that is again within these parameters. So, if there's a machloket between the Bikiv Eger 
וחתם סופר, ‫בלול אקורדינג טו, וחתם סופר, ‫וסוגן סמת ופקיבייר. ‫נסור נוסף. Does that answer the question? My question was, why is there the cutoff? Meaning, why can't the... The, periodic, the periodization... Let's say, why can't they argue with Rishonim? Like, why is there this arbitrary, or seemingly arbitrary... That's a very good question. The, periodiza the periodization of Jewish law basically is the result of the fact that at these given intervals of time, great codices were written. The codices, the Shulchan Aruch, for instance, is the end of the Rishonim and the beginning of the Achronim. Now, he had summed up the state of knowledge of all that period itself. So, that's why there are cut-off periods. Similarly, the Rambam is a cut-off period. Actually, the end of the Gaonic period is Rav Hai Gaon, who wrote more to sponsor than any other Gaon of his period in around the year 1000. So when you get these formulations, these literary formulations, like the Mishnah, like the writings of Rav Hai Gaon or the Rif, Rambam, the Shulchan Aruch, they were summations of what was known. So, you cannot ignore them. In point of fact, despite the fact that there are these rules, we know that achronim cholkim al rishonim, and rishonim cholkim al gaonim. They have to justify it, but they do, in fact. So there's a periodization which is the result of a, a literary development, which creates certain strictures, but at the same time, there's a certain fluidity to it, certain flexibility that exists, practically speaking. So my question is, is that, wouldn't you agree that a modern-day innovation in Pesachalaha is the viewing of the entire body of Torah Shalopet as one work, and so maybe that's sort of with the Balitosvos, where they unified the shots and said there's, we have a difficulty from over here that's not necessarily in the, in the place that we're talking about, but from a textual language that's similar and so on and so forth, to now where you see, um, you know, respond to where they just draw on a whole multitude of different sources. And you said earlier, they don't, they take them out of their historical and societal context. I mean, you, you look at any, many modern-day publications and the authors just take a whole bunch of disparate sources that have no connection to each other in terms of historical context and tie them all together. Isn't that a, a very serious modern-day innovation? Actually, it's not. <laughs> One of the big differences between Rashi and Tosfot is that Rashi interprets each text within its own specific context. The chidush, the innovation of the Baalei Tosafot was an attempt to harmonize radically different views found in different tractates of the Talmud. Rashi never tried to do that. Rashi explained each text as it was. 
the attempt to harmonize the whole of the old law as it was then known into one unified corpus was an innovation of the ballet Tosafot. Going back earlier than the ballet Tosafot, if you look at the Gaonim, they are real text critics. Again, these are technical questions, but it is the Gaonim that tell us that the first four folios of Masechet Kiddushin are Saboreic and not Amoreic. This is almost, you know, biblical, like biblical criticism with Q's and P's. Saboreic having less of a um, status. The Ga'anim throughout will point to certain passages in the Talmud saying that this was not Mibain Matifta. This was not from the classic academies of Surah and Pupudita. And therefore, do not have to be regarded in the same light. In this way, they explain many so-called contradictions. The ballet Tosafo didn't like that, so they tried to harmonize that. So what you seem to be referring to is actually going back to a much earlier classical form of analysis, text analysis, form analysis, of the classical texts. It's not an innovation, it's a, a resurrection, <laughs> as it were, of an earlier methodology. And I'll go even further. The whole way of Lithuanian yeshiva thinking, which was pioneered by Reb Chaim Brisk, the so-called Brisker method of Chilukim, is one which tries to stress the differences between the different texts, showing that there are different rationales being functioning in, even in one single author. So when he solves a contradiction in the Rambam, he says because the Rambam was thinking of two different categories. Now this is a very interesting, very modern way of reading literature. And tells us even, goes even further than that of Shimon Shkop. So these modern methodologies actually have their antecedents in very classical Jewish law. After all, the Talmud is a compendium of material which was written over a period, the Babylonian Talmud, over a period of some 300 years with the opinion of many hundreds of different authorities uh, and um, living in different cities, even in different agricultural situations, 
Some lived in the Galilee, some lived in the south, some lived on the coastal plains, which if you read, for instance, Seder Zra'im, which deals with agriculture, differences in climate and differences in topography are basic. And you can really only understand the differences if you take into account where these different authorities are speaking from and what period of time. So the so-called modern techniques of uh, academic analysis really go back very early. So in, um, there's a lot of biblical law about warfare. Having a state of Israel again, there's once again a lot of discourse around the laws and ethics of warfare in Israel. Warfare? Warfare. Where do you see continuity with the early laws of warfare? And where in the modern state of Israel do you see innovation around the laws of warfare? Don't know too much about the laws of warfare. Hmm. I know I was in the army. <laughs> I fought in three wars <laughs> in Israel. Um, I know you, one, one has to protect oneself. And I know that one has to protect one's country. And I know one has to uh, fight against evil. And when half a dozen different major armies surround you and try to annihilate you, annihilate you, then you use every means at your disposal to protect yourself. There were always rules, biblical rules, of what you were permitted to do and what you were not permitted to do. There are situations where you're establishing yourself and there's situations where you're already established. And different principles apply in Jewish law, in classical biblical law, as opposed to when you already are established. When you're already established, you have to warn your enemy. You have to give them an opportunity to retreat, you have to give them an opportunity to negotiate, and it's only when all those diplomatic overtures have turned out to be in vain that you can actually attack. And there are also rules about what you can attack. I mean, the mere fact that in a state of war, you're not allowed to destroy fruit trees means that you're already taking into account what the next generation of the vanquished will need. You can't destroy, destroy the infrastructure. These are actually very... Um, I would say, modern ideas, they're not found in the code of Hammurabi. They are found in the Chumash, 
So, I don't know what specifically you were thinking about, referring to, but um, the principle of self-protection <coughs> is already found in the Bible when somebody comes into your house to steal from you you're allowed to defend yourself and to attack him and even kill him. There are a bunch of questions. <laughs> yes. Hi. Um, so from this discussion, innovation is inevitable. It's going to keep happening, it's going to keep happening. And you were alluding to a framework which to me it sounded like there's some decision-making matrix that has that the question has to go through to then decide if it's going to be permitted. And I guess I'm trying to find out what would that decision making matrix be and where can I read more about it or learn more about it, if it exists. Well as I said that the decision making matrix as you call it, the Claleb Sak were formulated over the generations. Mm -hmm. They are the rules of decision-making. They have their own sources in the classical texts, in the Mishnah, in the Gemara, and they have their own rationale. And they are the sort of um, parameters within which you're permitted to work. One of the questions that I'm always asked and that I don't have an answer to is when you start shifting the boundaries, how do you know when to stop? People talk about the slippery slope. And to that I don't have an answer. It's clear that when you start re-examining the sources and you find according to your understanding of those sources, within the huge variety of sources that exist, that are at your disposal, things that were not practiced in the past, but are basically legitimate, permissible, then your horizons broaden. more things become evident. And as more things become evident, the boundaries shift. So what was forbidden a hundred years ago, like women's voting according to Ralph Cook's itself was forbidden, is now permissible. And so on and so forth, just for a random example. Whether this can continue, or to what extent it can continue, is very difficult to know. Because you're treading on uncharted territory. The strictures, the... What, 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 what restricts you, the restrictions, are that you are text-based and that the 
this matrix that you were referring to. And the matrix makes a distinction between biblical law, rabbinic law, and custom. Those are the three categories of Jewish law. And within each of those classifications, categories, there are restrictions. And there are rules, and they're formulated. And they have their literary sources and their rationale. So those are the sort of things that hold you up. So far I can go. Beyond that, I don't. Let's take one more question. I know there's many. All right, let's take two more questions. <laughs> you have to decide. I'll let you decide. <laughs> what, what, what in your opinion... <laughs> he decided. <laughs> <laughs> what in your opinion is the prognosis for Orthodox Judaism if instead of leapfrogging into an egalitarian mode where there, where the roles of men and women are identical, rather if we move incrementally, slowly, perhaps women becoming halachic decisors in that type of movement? You know, these are tricky questions because they've got <laughs> nice formulations, but you have to end analyze what you mean by egalitarian and what you there isn't complete equality between men and women i mean men are built physically differently from women and women can do things that men Talking so far can't do ritual in terms of well ritual is influenced by by these sorts of things there isn't a law of nida for men there is a law of nida for women there are certain things in ritual which are dependent upon the differences between men and women I and therefore, there isn't egalitarianism. Is, and it's not is, a question of leapfrogging. We're not creating a, a complete equivalence. And therefore, we're examining what areas, in what areas it makes sense to create a situation of equivalence. And again, we're basing ourselves on the sources. We're not and I don't think it's a matter of leapfrogging, it's not even a matter of the time element, because nowadays things can't go slowly. You can't wait. Why? Because, because everything moves quickly nowadays. If you miss, simply said, if you miss the station, you lose people. You're, 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 you're going to you're already losing vast numbers of Jews. Certainly in the United States. I mean, think of the Pew Report. Something has to be done if you want to preserve the integrity of the people. And if you do things, and it goes, sorry? Not on the Orthodox side, you're not losing. Is that the only thing you're worried about? Just Orthodox, you're not worried about 50% of the population in the United States? You're not worried about intermarriage? I spent my, fir my first 50 years in the reform movement. So you know. And they have diluted so much of the text and the liturgy and the tradition that I think that it has turned people off and I think they've walked away. That's my concern, uh, is that we're diluting. Well, I think that's what I said. There are parameters and there are principles that you have to abide by. And if you keep those principles, 
then you're not going to dilute. Well, the, the lot more than two questions. <laughs> okay. Um, one of the innovations of the last 200 years is the concept of the nation state um, and of citizens of a nation state. And for the last 70 years, we had the state, the state of Israel. Um, and a nation state has laws that apply to all the citizens. Um, so within the state of Israel, can you talk a little bit about the tension or the harmony between Jewish law and the law of the nation state that applies to all the individuals? If I had a semester, I could. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, there's a tremendous tension between them. And the, the, you know that there, were, there was a Supreme Court judge, Menachem Elon, who tried to introduce as far as possible, elements of classical Jewish law, Mishpat Ivri, into the general legal system. And been, there were other judges like Barak, a Supreme Court judge and a brilliant person, who in his hundreds of rulings never once included Jewish law. And there's been a reaction to that more recently in the Supreme Court where they're trying to reintroduce. There was a ruling made by the, by the government that every new legislation on the part of the government or the Supreme Court has to take into account the relevance, if there are relevant sources in Jewish law. The extent to which they do it is very questionable. So there exists a, a, a tension, and the tension is understandable. It's very difficult in an international a state is, is, is an international body, a body that, that exists within an international context, and therefore it has to take into account international law. And uh, many cases that, that, that will contradict um, either national law or, or, or Jewish law. So this is a constant tug of war and it depends really who stands at the helm of the government. Depends who has the majority in the government and who, who are the leading authorities in the, in the Supreme Court. But it, it's, it's a serious question. How Therefore I said it takes a, a semester. Howard, go ahead. This is a short question. Um, have you written on this topic either in a book or in an article? And if you have not, can you refer us or me to a source where we can read in more depth the subject matter of your um, remarks tonight? Numerous. Numerous articles right and books. <laughs> yes. A, a, a considerable amount of material. I, I just want to point out that Hayashan uh, Hadesh is the, and that's the model of the mutual here in, in, uh, in the valley. That's true. And it's in the mutual, so I'm delighted to Also, wasn't the ban on more than one life, wasn't that only supposed to be in effect for a thousand years? Yes, it was for a thousand years and it was reinstituted by the rabbinic courts in about 1950. We're very grateful to Rabbi Shmurek. Thank you.
so much. As you know, our goal at Valley Bateman Drosh is that everybody leaves uncomfortable. <laughs> Maybe tonight you felt like something wasn't traditional enough. Maybe you felt like something was, wasn't innovative enough. That's good. It means that you're thinking, and then maybe some new questions arose from you. So have a conversation tonight or tomorrow. Say, what's my relationship to innovation and tradition? How am I balancing both of those in tension? We're all gonna find different places where we find ourselves comfortable. And there's a very big tent for how we can find ourselves within that very difficult balance. But I hope you're leaving uncomfortable, and I hope that doesn't lead to, I don't like you said this, or I don't like you said this, but rather, how am I gonna advance my process of understanding this for me? Thank you, Rabbi Elush and Beth Tefillah, for hosting. Thank you, Rabbi Shkuber, for flying from Israel and for being with us. Have a good night.